Well, good morning. I am George Lockyer, and I am one of the elders here at Country Bible. And there are four of us also who are staff pastors, and um, I am one of them. The other three are either accomplished or aspiring preachers. I just want to die peacefully. So. <laughs> I have no aspiration to be a preacher, but I am by profession, if you want to say professional training, a teacher. So when I bring messages to you, I usually do it in a teaching format, and which is what I will be doing this morning. And uh, over the past several months is we've been doing a series called The, the Compelling Community basically ways to energize the church. And this morning, I'll be taking one of the topics of that, the relational-oriented community. So with that, we'll be looking from Colossians chapter 3 into how we are to relate to one another, but how we relate to one another just is really tied a lot to just how am I doing personally. And... Um, Part of um, my, if you want to say my profession, is not only do I pastor part-time here, but uh, for many years, for over 40 years, I was a teacher at Lincoln Christian, and I still do coaching there, and I am a wrestling coach. And I'm, <clears throat> one of the things that I really love about the sport of wrestling is how I can transfer it, transfer it into a lot of things about what it is to live out the Christian life, is that the concept of wrestling is a theme that Paul uses quite a bit, well, and other writers as well. Every time you read the word struggle, it's the word agonizo, and you think of wrestling, you think of agony, and that's translated as the word wrestling. But one of the things, the, the hardest part for me as a wrestling coach is not teaching skills and not getting wrestlers into physical condition. It's mindset is the hardest part of it, is to teach them how to work through struggle and how to prepare themselves for, for the the contest of a match, and then in the midst of a match are going to come things that will, that will press into to the wrestler at that time. And more so than they, they certainly need to have some skills to work through that, but the biggest factor of winning and losing in wrestling is mindset. And how do you work through the hard things that you will face in most matches? And so when I, was, when I read through Colossians chapter 3, I, I just automatically related to what Paul was talking about here. And so, um, and how it relates to our relationship to one another in the church. And how do we come together as, as it says, a relationally oriented community? So this morning, I want to challenge you with this here from the scriptures. 
I have no idea how long this message is going to take. <laughs> but I've, I've warned the, uh, the team that they may have to suddenly come in here or they may be cutting the last song. So, um, but if you would first pray with me and then we'll get into the, the teaching from Colossians chapter 3. Lord, thank you for the great privilege it is to bring this word to my brothers and sisters here. And as we do so, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and the, the meditation that's been of my heart will be pleasing to you and will bring upon the hearts of these people here just to aspire them to, um, just to, to walk with one another in a new and refreshed way, that we would see one another in a new way, and that we would... In the, in the battle against the enemy and against sin, we would stand together and lock arms and to do so in such a way that glorifies you. So, so may these words just be accurate and may they reflect your heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, first thing I want to do is, is just put the setting into Colossians chapter 3. Is that in Colossians chapter 2, what Paul's addressing right before chapter 3 comes up, is some false teaching that was occurring at the time with the church in Colossae. And, and, and what was going on at that time is that the, the gospel was being perverted in such a way as to be put in focusing on what is it that you do not do? Is, is that it was defining Christianity by the things that you avoid in life, and I don't know about you, but I, I for a while there, I, I had that in my own life, is all the do-nots. In fact, the, the first ministry job I had, I had to sign a statement, a, a life st kind of lifestyle statement that had probably about 30 statements on it, and I would say that 25 of them were the do-nots. You, you do not go to an R-rated movie. You do not drink alcohol. You do not smoke. You do not, do not, do not, do not, and do all those things. And I had to sign off on it that I would do it. I didn't. I signed off on it, but I didn't do it. And, and the reason why I didn't do a lot of those things is a couple of reasons. Is one of them I thought they were dumb. Uh, and the other thing was, is that, as we're going to see today, is that there is sin that dwells within me. Okay? So my disobedience to what I signed off on on itself was sinful, uh, where I made a commitment that saying that I wouldn't do these things and behind their back, I did some of them. Uh, so, um, so th but that's what Paul is addressing. And, and so if you... If you have your Bible open to Colossians chapter 2, is, is Paul starts off in verse 16, and he just uses the term, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or regard to festival or to new moon or to Sabbath. These are shadows of things. But in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on certain things here in regards to it. And then in verse 20 here, and this is where we want to focus, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, 
as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So what Paul was saying is that you're getting caught up into this do nots, do nots, do nots. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And so when he gets to chapter 3 then, is as Mike read in the opening here in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, what Paul says, if then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he's saying that in such a way as that that's in contrast to these elemental things, the things of the earth here. It's that, no, seek those things that are above. Set your minds, so here's the mindset, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear him, with him in glory. So the call is to change the mindset, a, a new way of thinking. If you have been raised with Christ, set your mind and your heart uh, on things that are above, that these, these things that identify you with, with, why is it that Christ died? Why is it that, the, what's the meaning of the resurrection and his coming again? It's those are the things I need to set my mind on, not the things of the earth, not these rules and regulations that are thrown at me. So this is turning our attention to what we are to do rather than what we are not to do. I'm to do that, set my mind on Christ and not on the things of the world and not in this present state. And the reason is because I have a new identity. I'm identified now with Jesus Christ. My union with Christ means to sever myself, to separate myself, to die to the tyranny of the powers of this world and, and be provided a new life in Jesus Christ, which includes a new identity. And part of that identity is into the identity into a community, into the community of the church. And so let's take a look at my, my intention here this morning is to go through verses 5 through 15 here. So um, chapter 3, verse, I'm just going to go this verse by verse with you. And, um, and just take a look at what was Paul addressing here with, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then <clears throat> put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so... He's setting, a, setting up, essentially starting off with the word, though it's not in the order of it, therefore, okay? And so every time, if you've been studying, if you study the Bible any, and there's just this old saying is that if you see therefore, you ask yourself, what is therefore? And so, so he's given something now in contrast to this, or just saying is that, okay, on account of this, on account is that what setting your mind on things that are above and not on things on the earth, 
So what you are to do is that you need to put to death what is earthly in you. Now, what Paul does, he does this often in his writings, is that he'll clump together things. And so we see this happening here. He, he does it in many of other chapters of other books here is, and you'll see him do it a couple times here in the verses. He, he clumps things together. And the reason is because sin is a web. It, it, it that you, you just don't singularly sin of is, is that when I'm caught, when I'm involved, when I'm caught myself into a sin is that it's usually not some singular thing, but it's a, it's a whole bunch of things that are interconnected coming together. So Paul uses these lists. And anytime you see a list on Paul, you, that's one of the things you want to look at is why this list? What's the connection between all of them? And, that, and that's what he does here as well. But what I want to focus on first is this, con this concept of put to death. Because it's important for us to realize what that means, is that can I kill sin? And the answer is yes and no. Is that by killing it here, the word actually is the word mortify. Mortify. And what it means is to give it a death blow. But I cannot kill sin. Sin dwells within me. As long as I have this flesh, sin dwells within me. But, see, sin is not a thing. It's a power. It's a power. And what I need to do is I need to diminish that power. I need to mortify that power. I need to give that power a death blow. And so as long as sin resides in me, is that I need to, to understand is that what it means to put it to death means do not cooperate with it. Is that, and so this is a, a concept is, um, <clears throat> if you've known me for very long, is that I am a big John Owen fan. Uh, I've gobbled up most of his books. So if, and it takes a year, a lifetime to read them. Uh, but <clears throat> one, of, one of the books that had probably a huge impact on me is a book called of the mortification of sin in believers. And I've taken several people, discipled them through this book itself. And um, I just want to give you this quote here on the mortification of sin in believers by John Owen, where he, gi he gives us a definition of that. And what he says this is that to mortify a sin is not utterly to kill, root it out and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all, nor reside in our hearts. It is true, this is what we aim at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. Mortification consists in a habitual weakening of sin and consists in constant fighting and contending against sin. And his first general rule of life is this. Be sure to get an interest in Christ if you intend to mortify any sin. Without it, it will never be done. He's also famous for this particular saying here from his book. Do you make it, do, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. You'll be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so with this is that in looking at this particular area of sin that Paul addresses to the church, again, these are interconnected. 
as sin, and it's a web of interacting areas where if, even if I was to mortify one area of these five areas that he puts right there, is that, is that the others are going to still be at work in me. And that's why he puts them into lists and not into single ones. So just, <clears throat> excuse me, just, just taking a look at this list real quickly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but if the first one he puts in this list is sexual immorality. Okay, sexual immorality, the, the Greek word is pornonia. It's where we get the word pornography from, but it's just a general term. So he's starting out with a general overview of the things here. And he's talking here about sexual deviancy from God's creative design. It'll, it would include fornication, adultery, homosexuality. And Jesus even extends it to my thinking about those things and things that are even going on in my mind. And again, that mindset aspect of it. So he, he lists first sexual immorality. Then he gets into impurity. And impurity just is an uncleanliness. It's a moral corruption, and it's usually centered around sexual sins. And then he lists passion, and along with passion would be a word for lust. And, and here, we want to take a look at a verse here that I think gives us a good picture of um, impurity, passion, and lust. Is that from Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. He says, therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So you see the connections there. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so here we see the word passion again. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So again, we see the entanglement of these terms here into dealing with sin. And then also what he talks about here is he lists evil desires. And this is just basically our, our tendency towards sin. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 talks about this impulse that we have to sin. It says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, this is not, I, I can't blame something outside of me. Uh, it, it's my own, it's with, that's what's in me. That's what I need to blame is that when I'm falling into temptation and then desire, if I allow it there, when it's, it's conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. There's a little bit of a relief in this verse right to here is that notice that in terms of sequence here is that what he's saying is that, you know, temptation's not sin. Temptation's not sin. It's we're all tempted. Jesus was tempted. Okay? It's just, what do I do with it? Okay? Is that, do I move temptation then into desire? And what happens is if I move it into desire now, it's giving birth to sin. So there's an out that God gives us in regards to that. That's for another time. Okay, the last one he goes through is covetousness, in which he says is idolatry. It's simply an inappropriate desire for more and more things. 
and it, it is part of the source of the other four. And, and, and these are all related together as sexual aspects. And, and what they do is they express a lack of control. Desires grow and they grow. And when you don't control desires, what happens is you press for more and more is that this, along with other types of sin, is that to indulge in them is that first is that it brings about a certain reaction, and then suddenly I grow dull to that reaction and I need more to, to kick it in greater and greater. And that, so that's the danger of all of this. And so the danger is to get caught into that cycle there, but also as a believer in Jesus Christ, verse 6 tells me this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath is not a sudden change of mood that suddenly he has, and it's not selfish on his part. God's wrath is simply tied to his holiness and the violation of his commands, his character, and his will. It's really this. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin is that we have been delivered from the wrath of God. And so it's important for us to realize this, is that Romans 5, 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the thing, again, I cannot completely kill sin. And so there are times that I allow sin to gasp air and to, to give it some life back. I've, I've fallen that as a believer in Jesus Christ because it's there. It dwells within me. At, there are moments I need to come to my senses and, and I need to draw on the weapons of the gospel. And this is what Paul does in Romans 7 verses 21 through 25, and actually most of Romans 7 is this. But here's what Paul says. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, this is talking about his body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There's a battle that goes on. There's a battle that goes on. And to realize that's, that's life. That is our life, is that we're in this battle. But we're warned that if you don't wage this war... If you do not wage this war as a believer, you will come under the discipline of God. And not his wrath, but his loving discipline will come upon us. But to realize that in the world today, God's wrath is at work already. And an example of it comes from Romans chapter 1. For it says that the, and this is Paul writing 2,000 years ago, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. 
okay, <clears throat> is that one of the ways that God has unveiled his wrath on us today is that he's not stepping in and necessarily interfering, is he's allowing us to live it out and live out the consequences of those kinds of things. And so the call for us is this, is, is to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There will, the, God's work and wrath, again, is at work today, but also there is a day of wrath coming where there will be a day of judgment where the earth will be judged, the world will be judged that day, and that day is coming. And it's on its way, it's imminent in the sense that it, it could happen at any time. In Ephesians chapter 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, as he mentioned in Colossians, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, so with this is that God's wrath is coming. And so with that, as a believer, I am not fearful of that day of the day of wrath, but I fear for others. I fear for others of, on that day. And the only thing that's gonna deliver them from the wrath of God is the gospel. It's the gospel. And so to go on is that, okay, how do I, how do I look at others? How do I look at others? How should we as a church be looking at others? In verse seven, he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. The, the, the construction of this verse, the word you here is emphatic. In other words, it's uh, another way to put this verse together is could be translated, you also, along with these disobedient people just mentioned, walked in those sins. And, and so here's the thing. Is for, for some of you, you may have become a believer as a, a young child, placed your faith in Jesus Christ and, may, and maybe have walked pretty good. You, nobody walks really well. So if we walk pretty good most of your life and, and you know, and praise God for that. For, for, for many of us, I didn't become a believer until my early 20s. And so all the things that are even happening in the world today, I look at that and go, that easily could have been me. That easily could have been me. I was walking in that kind of thinking years ago. Uh, and so I look at these people and I honestly, I do not condemn them for what they do and what they say because they're just acting on what they are. Um, and it's annoying enough as a believer. But the thing is, uh, is for many of us, we, we have to realize the things that shock and anger us, we may have to step back a little bit and just say that could easily have been me right there as well. And that the thing that changed me was not somebody screaming at me the way I was living my life or signs that were up or if, they, if we had internet back then, tweets or anything else like that would not have changed the thing about me and the way I was living my life at that time. What changed me was the gospel. That's what changed me. And so we have to remember that, is that it was the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel that converted me. These people don't need to hear our condemnation. 
What they need to hear is the gospel and the truth of God's word. And so, so look at the next verse here with us. Is that, you know, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Now he's talking to us. Paul's talking to us as the church. Uh, is, is that what we need to do is now this contrast, okay, this was the former life here. I mean, you've, you've put off those kinds of things. What you now, what you need to do is you need to now put these things off. You need to get rid of these things in your life. And this is a command that he's giving us to stop these things. They, they represent verbal expressions here, is that the things that are coming out of our mouth and in that they're, they're all tied into emotions. And here in the listing is that the, the first one being anger, all these others get tied into the, the uh, emotion of anger. Now, the emotion of anger isn't necessarily an evil emotion. It's God gets angry. Okay? So it's not saying that, hey, get rid of all anger, but it's talking about anger that is wrath and is malice, is slander and obscene talk. Here, is that if anger leads to that, that's, that's the wrong kind of anger that goes on with this. So it, it's representing verbal expressions of emotions and not the, necessarily the emotion itself. And so with this is that Jesus just reminds us that in Matthew 15, 18, that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that's what defiles the person. Okay? My heart is already evil. My heart is already wicked. So the words that come out of my mouth is what defiles me. So when I allow it to move outside. So anger, wrath, and malice. And what they do is those, those three, they lead to slandering somebody. In other words, speaking lies about somebody, speaking lies to them. The word slander here is the same word to blaspheme. You, you, we just don't blaspheme God. We blaspheme each other. So if we tell lies to one another. Um, and, and, the, and then along with that coarse language that defames us. And so this all leads to the next verse, verse 9 here, is that do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And so now it's being mentioned in a community sense of lying to, with one another. And this needs to stop because lies feed into the emotions and it leads into the hearts. And oftentimes, when is it that I'm lying? Is that when I'm angry? When I'm angry, I'll spew forth lies at that time. Is that one that my wife and I, we constantly, when we're annoyed with each other, which <clears throat> very rarely happens. But we'll use terms that are lies to one another. You always, you never, uh, that's a lie. <laughs> there is the, and so, and, and we've learned this over the years. You know, we've done enough marriage counseling and, and other things, and we tell other people don't do that, and then we do it. So, so we turn around and kind of just counsel each other then at that point. It's, don't say never. Go, yeah. <laughs> you 99% of the time. <laughs> but, but that's, 
But, but to realize what this verse is saying is, is actually never, never lie to one another. So it's, it's pressing us to be careful about our words. When, when we're speaking emotionally, is to be careful about what comes out in, the, in our words when we speak emotionally to one another. And, and then from there, it, it ties into, and having put on now the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so now, now we want to get into, okay, so what is the church to look like? What are we to look like at the church? Okay, we started out a little bit like the, the teaching that Paul says, you know, is to avoid these, but, but about the do nots, okay? So he, he's kind of going along that same kind of thing as saying, okay, here's the negatives first, but now he wants to turn it around here. Is, is having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, is to realize that in Christ there is a new reality. And this reality that we live in is ruled by Jesus Christ. And we're not in the final stages of it because notice that he says that which is being renewed, it's a process. It, it, it isn't going to be done until Christ comes again. But we're, we're in this change, in this, we're in motion with this new reality. And, and what it is, is the knowledge is of God and understanding who he is in terms of Christ. And, and when, I, when I understand those things, and the more I grow and the more I understand those things, the more I understand what it is it to live this out. And, and with this is to realize that the perfection of that was lost in the garden, in the fall. And what happened is when Christ came and, and Christ went to the cross and died for our sins, and when he came, he was resurrected, is that he, he was celebrating basically a new life that can be found in him. And though, so with this is that it makes it possible for us to regain some of what was lost in the garden. And uh, with that is that Paul prays earlier in this letter for the Colossians in Colossians 1, 9 to 10, where he says, oh, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And it talks about us being, uh, that this is happening in the image of its creator, which alludes back to Adam in Genesis 1, and how the image of the, how the, the full image that Adam had was defaced at the fall. But now the image of God is being renewed by the Holy Spirit in us. And we're called now a new creation is that when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, I am now a new creation. And as it tells us in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. And that the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And then Paul goes on to say, okay, so what is this going to look like in the church? What is this going to look like as we come together in the church? And, and, and Paul points this out. Here there's, no, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. 
is that through Christ, we've been given a new pattern. And, and we, he's created into us a new self. So that Romans 8.29 tells us this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Is that this is this new humanity that's been now conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ in order that we might be among brothers, that he was the firstborn among brothers. And so this new humanity created by God through Christ, where there's no distinction. And what the world does is the world has assigned distinctions to us. And the differences is to realize this, that the differences that he brings to us here is that there, there, are, this, there are some, and he's, and he's not obliterating the, the, the differences, is that simply they diminish in relativity to us in the church, okay? Is that Dean is a Jamaican, so he's still a Jamaican of, as a believer in Jesus Christ, of, and, and that we all have our backgrounds, that is that those are not obliterated, but what it is, is the importance of those kinds of things are, they simply move away. They're not significant anymore with this. So we maintain the distinctions that we have, is that I am a man, okay? Is that regardless of what the world tells me, I am a man, and there are women. And we still have those gender distinctions that are about. And the, the, um, along with it, our ethnicities and social identities. Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles and so forth. But the polarity of those distinctions, the differences, all of them are overcome by our unity in Jesus Christ. And with that, it tells us that Jesus Christ, who is all and in all. So it means that the, the thing that pulls us all together in these distinctions is that Christ is in all and he is all. And so by that, a new humanity then is formed from there. It's that we are all in Christ. We are all in Christ. And so from then, Paul says, on account of that, now put on. Okay, so we, we've, we, we need to put off those other kinds of things. And and in, in putting them off, again, we're going to fight. We're going to fight those kinds of things. But what we need to do is put on this as God's chosen ones, those who are holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Is, is that Paul likes to do things in fives here with, with this chapter. But put on can be translated simply as clothe yourself and and that there's going to be five virtues that parallel the other things that he has brought up that bring to us identity and cohesion as the church. And so through faith, we're joined together. No matter who we are ethnically, no matter socially and so forth, we put aside those kinds of things and we facilitate the unity of the body. So as a church, that's our role, is that we, we need to facilitate this unity. And how do we do this? Is that we first start out and realize that together we are God's chosen, holy, and beloved people, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's a description that was used of Israel in the Old Testament where <clears throat> first Israel was chosen. 
<coughs> excuse me, their existence and status depended upon God's decision. He, he said that he didn't choose them for any reason other than he chose them. That there was nothing distinctive about the people who were Jewish, about the people, they weren't Israel at the time, but the Jewish people. So if there was nothing about them. He just says, I simply chose you because I'm going to love you. And so with that, he gave them distinction and he formed them. He chose them, formed them, and gave them distinction. The way he gave them distinction about what is what he was doing with them. He took them through the Exodus. And then from the Exodus, he gave them his law. And then, in, then he took them to a promised land there. And so God did all those things. It wasn't them that did it. God did all those things through them. And now God forms a new covenant community. He's, and now, and of a people who by his choosing and by his electing is that he calls them out, both from Jews and Gentiles. In Romans chapter 9, says that even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. We're holy. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are holy simply by the gracious act of God. Nothing of us, but by the gracious act of God. And it's descriptive of the church, meaning that we're separated out from the world for God's purposes. We are separated out. From God, And that's what the word holy means. Holy means separated for a purpose. And so the church is holy. The church is beloved. And so what God has done with this is that he uses the term in Romans chapter 1, 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, where he says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And so what he says on account of that, going back to the verse, is that he says here that what they are is to put on compassion. The word compassion literally means bowels of mercy. Okay? And it's an interesting term. So what he does is he's speaking about this, this compassion is actually, he's speaking of it in a physiological sense, is that of your bowels, of something, my intestines, my guts, Stuff. To have compassion on somebody doesn't mean that I just be nice to them. It means that there's something actually physiologically happening within me in regards to it. Is that it, it, I'm the, it's putting a physical reaction to an emotion. And so that you feel compassion. You just don't do compassion. You feel it. And other terms that are sometimes used for it is, is tender-hearted mercy for somebody else or heartfelt love 
for somebody else. Again, is that it's, it's just beyond doing something for somebody, but it's, it's an actual, I'm, I'm feeling this compassion right now. Um, and, and then kindness is an expression simply of a gracious act towards somebody. It's an attribute of God that's stated in chapter 3 of Titus, is that it says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ. And so with this is that, is that Galatians 6 says that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit and part of the fruit of the Spirit. And then humility, this is taken from the supreme act of Christ. And when he took on human form is that he humbled himself, stepped down from his position in heaven, took on flesh and going to the cross and dying for our sin. So in humility is simply I value others above myself and I don't look towards my own interest, but I'm looking towards the interest of others around me. And then gentleness. Gentleness is a quality of not being overly impressed by one, the sense of one's importance. Jesus claimed this for himself in Matthew chapter 11 when he said that he was gentle and he was humble or lowly in heart. And then there's patience. It's an attitude that both God the Father and Christ display towards us as sinners. That God is patient with us. He's patient. Uh, and... and and with that is that he, he's calling us to be the same towards one another. So how do we work out these virtues? How do we work these out? In verse 13, what it tells us is that we're to bear with one another. And if you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So first, first of all, it says that we have to bear with one another. This is a really interesting term. Now we have to bear with one another. And it's an imperative. This is a command. You are to do this. You are to bear with one another. And what bearing indicates is like a, a grudging willingness to put up with difficult circumstances or difficult people. You're to bear with it. Okay? You're to bear with that. What's interesting, even Jesus had trouble. I shouldn't say he had trouble. But, but Jesus... He says this in Matthew 17, 17, when he answered them in a question, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Uh, and, and so with that, bearing is a necessary step to building community. We have to bear with one another. It's part of Christian fellowship. In here this morning, it was made up of all kinds of people. You know, we're, we're all different. And, and what there is, is that some are hard to put up with. Uh, and some are very easy to put up with. Some we have common interests in, and others, I just, I have no idea how we could ever associate. So other than, we're going to bear with one another. Okay? We're, we're going to put up with one another. And what we're going to do is we're going to love one another. And we're... we're we're going to do it with these attitudes of humility and, and others. Is that, and, and not only are we going to bear with one another, we're going to forgive one another. Okay? So when somebody says something to you that insults you or something like that, 
is that, okay, you may have a complaint with that person, and that's fine. But we need to forgive each other for actions and do it by grace. Now, forgiving isn't a blanket forgiveness, that whatever you do, I'm going to forgive you right away of that. But forgiveness is always on the table. It's always on the table. And what it is is that by putting that on the table, it's also going to be freely offered at all times. That. So forgiveness itself is another sermon someday, sometime. But the thing is, we are commanded, we are to be forgiving. We are to be forgiving. It's on the table. And so with that, it leads to the supreme virtue of this, for above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So above all these things, love is the thing that binds all things together. And all the virtues attain their power and potential only when they're unified and empowered by love. The goal is perfect harmony. That's the, the goal, is that we would be a church that has perfect harmony. It's a picture of the choir blending different voices to create a sound that's impossible and far more powerful than what one person can do. Um, is that when the church together acts like this, it is a powerful force. It's a powerful force. And so with that is that he ends it with this. Now let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So the end continues the putting on these virtues of forgiving one another and making love supreme. So we let the peace of Christ rule. Peace is one of the key blessings that we have. It's the rule principle for the church as we're called together to be one body. So be thankful. Being thankful is very simple. It's a simple giving of gratitude for God's gracious calling. And when we, we are thankful, we find it easier to extend grace to one another, to be forgiving and put aside the petty things that might bring about and inhibit peace. So with that, if you pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Christ. And thank you for what Christ has offered to us as a church. And Lord, I just pray that from the, your, your word here, from the, the things that perhaps have touched into our own hearts and places where we just need to step up, and to just have the things that are going to be before us as far as the church goes and when we, we plant Redemption Hill is that indeed we would be a church that pursues these kinds of virtues in each one of our lives and let the church be magnified through them. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit that has been given to us that we may thrive, thrive with it. In Jesus' name, amen. And with that, I see the music team is looking at me. You're dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>